All right, we have two announcements. First of all, on Monday night, uh, Jeff Phipps is hosting a uh, Bible study for the uh, uh, Camperete kids, and that is a Zoom meeting, so you can find out information about that by going to the Camperete website. And then on Thursday, about 11 o'clock is when we have our prep school uh, meeting with, uh, I think that may be a Zoom meeting as well, but that is done by with Mark Mark Friedrich and John uh, Williamson. Uh, one uh, thing I want to make uh, note of, today there was a report in several different uh, uh, newspapers, or we don't have newspapers anymore, periodicals or whatever, and I'm reading from the ChristianPost.com. This is about a Georgia church that closed two weeks after reopening. It reopened about a month ago, and then... Two weeks later, after following all the protocols, two weeks later, they had an outbreak of, of the coronavirus in the congregation. This was at the Catoosa Baptist Tabernacle, which is an independent uh, Baptist church in Ringgold, Georgia. Now, Ringgold, Georgia isn't very large. It's a town of about, uh, about 3,600 people. And they didn't have a large number of infections in the county and uh, problems of, of, um, of that nature. And so this caught everybody by surprise. This is one of the reasons that we haven't uh, restarted uh, having uh, opening the church for Sunday morning or for Tuesday and Thursday night just because of the uh, intense infection rate of this virus, along with the fact that you can be infectious for up to two weeks before you even show symptoms, that we believe it's important to uh, keep all of us as safe and healthy as possible, and that uh, we have a large number of people who are uh, elderly and also, that means over 65, myself included, and they are... Um, uh, they need to be protected. A lot of people have underlying conditions of diabetes or high blood pressure and everything, and so uh, we want to make sure everyone is kept safe. The, as I, we emailed out the other day, there will be a de- another deacons meeting in a couple of weeks just to uh, reassess. So we believe that it is important, and there's no pressure. There's no reason for us to meet. In fact, uh, we have a huge number of people now logging in on Sunday morning, as well as on Tuesday night and Thursday night to live stream. And God has faithfully provided for our finances in March and April. I think a lot of churches want to get back to me because they have to pass the offering plate. And so uh, God has provided for us very, uh, very richly, and his grace always supplies our every need for which we are very thankful. So please continue to be in prayer for the leadership as we assess everything. Situation changes all the time. But we need to recognize that in a number of places, large number of places, that the hot, the, the, the center of a lot of outbreaks has been in churches. And so we just need to be uh, careful with that. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. 
I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we need to make sure that we're in right relationship with the Lord, walking by means of God the Holy Spirit, walking according to the Holy Spirit. When we sin, that walk, that intimate fellowship, that pursuit of our spiritual growth is halted. And to recover, we need to confess sin, which simply means to admit or acknowledge our sin to him in silent prayer, and instantly we are forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness. So uh, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, after which I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that we have this opportunity to come together to focus upon you. Your word is eternal. Your word is absolute truth. Your word gives peace to our thoughts. It calms us down, focuses us. It keeps us from getting distracted by all of the crazy things that are going on around us. And it is the only thing that is ultimately important. And what we internalize is what we is the only thing that we take with us when we leave this life. Father, we pray as we continue our study that we may learn and apply some of the things that we uh, focus on and that you will strengthen, enrich us in our spiritual life, give us greater trust in you. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Now, last time as I was wrapping up, I focused a lot on just some of the things that are going on that we need to focus our attention upon the Lord. We see a great example of that in David because as David is fleeing from Jerusalem, he's in a situation of uncertainty. He's in a situation where, uh, where there's a tremendous amount of chaos and his life is threatened, his kingdom is threatened, everything that he has built in the previous years is threatened by his son who is initiating a rebellion against him. And when we're in a position of chaos, a position of uncertainty, in fact, I read an article today where the writer used a French or Italian phrase, which means this day of uncertainty. And that's what it is. And and people like certainty. They like to know what's going to happen tomorrow. They like that regularity of their lives. And we may not see that. It may not get back to that until at least there's maybe a vaccine or a cure or treatment for for this particular virus. And as believers, we still need to relax, but we should not be distracted from the mission. And that's what I focused on at the end last time. And since then, I continue to see things that that come across my desk through email or text, people text things to me, things of that nature. 
And one of the things I didn't mention last time that I think is really important to uh, focus on uh, before we get back into our study, when we live in times of uncertainty like this, and you can go back more than 200 years, but if you go back 200 years, what's going on 220, 230 years ago? You have the conquest of Europe by Napoleon. Napoleon left Europe. He goes down to North Africa, sweeps around North Africa and the eastern Mediterranean. And everybody wonders, who's this guy that's that's going to conquer all of Europe and unite all of Europe? Is he the Antichrist? And suddenly it stimulated a tremendous amount of interest in what the Bible says about end times and end time prophecy. And as he Napoleon headed towards Jerusalem, people really got excited. What does the Bible say about the return of the Jews to the land? And this really stimulated a lot of interest in end time studies and in uh, the study of, of, of Israel and God's plan for Israel. In chaotic times, this happens. You fast forward a little bit to the mid to latter, latter part of the 19th century, and you have the rise of Germany, the unification of Germany, the power of Bismarck. People were uh, speculating that Bismarck uh, was the Antichrist. And then you get into uh, World War One. You get into the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia. You get into World War Two. And there's all kinds of speculation. Is Hitler the Antichrist? Is he uniting Europe? And many, many other people. And you get the same thing today. And you hear about new technologies. And certainly new technologies uh, could possibly be used at some future time by some future Antichrist. But people get all distracted by this. Let me tell you something. Back when I was a student at Dallas Seminary, One of the wisest things I heard one of my professors say, it was Dwight Pentecost who wrote a huge tome called Things to Come, which was sort of the the standard, uh, large standard uh, study on eschatology for, for dispensationalists for many, many years. And I had a number of classes. We called him Dr. P. Had many classes with him. And he would, one time I remember him saying, men... Remember this, Satan has no more idea when the Antichrist is going to come or when the rapture is going to come than you or I do. He has no idea when the rapture is going to come. So therefore, when it happens, he has to be ready. That means in every decade, in every generation, he has to have someone that he can use as the Antichrist, someone some candidate for the false prophet. He's got to have different organizations and people in place that he can move quickly to establish uh, uh, his kingdom on the earth. So at any point in time, you can read the newspaper, you can read your contemporary events, and you can say, that guy probably going to be the Antichrist. That guy, he could be the false prophet. Look at this, that technology, that can... That can make these events in Revelation come true. And then people get all distracted with all of this speculation. The reality is Satan's always ready with somebody, so you're always going to be look, looking at that, and you can get your emotions all excited over all of these things. Jesus is coming back soon. Well, most of these people, Dr. Pentecost, Dr. Chafer, Dr. Ryrie, Dr. Walberd, uh, John Whitcomb, who spoke here at the second 
uh, pastors conference that we hosted back in 2007. All of these men have all gone to be with the Lord. They all wrote a tremendous amount related to eschatology and related to prophecy. And I will tell you from my personal knowledge of almost every one of them, they all thought they would see the Lord return the rapture in their lifetime. Just think how much time Christians waste in their Christian life getting titillated by all of this speculation about the end times. It's just a terrible distraction from what we're doing because we have no clue. There's not one single sign, there's not one single event that has to transpire prior to Jesus returning at the rapture. Now, some of these things certainly make it apparent and that uh, or make it uh, seem obvious that that would help the Antichrist. And we hear things, as I pointed out last time, such as this could help with the mark of the beast. I remember my good friends, Tommy Ice and Randy Price, wrote a pamphlet called, or I think it was Tim Demme, on the coming cashless society. Oh, that really got people all excited with all that information. I've heard about it since the 70s. And they wrote that little pamphlet back in the early 90s, 90, 91, 92, something like that. That's almost 30 years ago now. And none of that has come to pass because we don't know the times or the seasons. We don't know when that is going to transpire. And so all of this speculation, it's I understand we're interested in that, and prophecy is important. Nobody enjoys the study of biblical prophecy more than I. But that's not going to tell me when any of this is going to happen. Our focus is to be on what Jesus said in the Great Commission, that we are to uh, go into all the world, that we are to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and we are to be... Uh, making disciples of all men by baptizing them and by teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded. And he did not send us into the world in order to figure out when the Antichrist was going to come. Ed Heinsohn, who is a fellow board member for the Pre-Trib Society, uh, Pre-Trib Study Group, and I've known Ed for many years, and Ed has a wonderful saying that I've stolen from him for many years, and that is, that we are to be looking for Jesus Christ and not for the Antichrist. And that's it, folks. That We are looking to the author and finisher of our faith, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. It's not to be distracted by all of these other things that come along and get all excited about them. I believe that the Lord's coming could very possibly be very close, but it could very possibly be another 100 or 200 years away And we have no idea. So we need to settle down and in the midst of all of this, look to opportunities to be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ because that's the most important thing. There are so many people out there who are frightened to death, scared to death. They have no hope. They don't have any understanding of the Messiah. They don't know what Jesus did. They don't know who Jesus is. And yet they are are scared. I have friends who are not saved, older friends who are not saved, and they haven't been out of their house in two months, and they probably won't be out of their house in the next two years unless there is a a vaccine or a treatment because they are scared to death. And we offer hope. 
We offer certainty. We offer the truth. And that should be our focus, and that's what we should be praying about and let God take care of all these other details that are going on because whether you know about it or not, whether you understand how all these things are going to come together or not, they're in God's sovereign plan, and he can handle it without us worrying about it too much. He's able to do that. It's just amazing. God's in control, and we're to do the, what I'm talking about tonight is an example of pro, the verse I quoted earlier, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. It doesn't mean to, just, to get rid of your understanding. It means don't lean on it. Don't depend on it. We see how these two things work together in the life of David in this event. That we're not to lean on our own understanding. In all our ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. And this whole episode that we're studying uh, tonight is a wonderful example of how God makes straight paths. And so we're going to be covering this next section from 2 Samuel 16.15 to 17.15 if we're able to get uh, through all of that. So let's just review quickly what we've seen so far in the Absalom Rebellion. First of all, chapter 15 in the first part of it, in the first 12 verses, we see Absalom launch his coup against his father, uh, King David. That is the first scene that we see in this uh, drama of the Absalom Rebellion. He begins the revolt, goes down uh, to verse 13, actually, when David hears, has a messenger come to him and says, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. And then we'll see David's response. That's where the scene shifts, is from Absalom uh, to David. Now, what Absalom did initially was he used a public lie. Some people call it the big lie, but this is a standard uh, tactic of propaganda to sow doubt and discord in the minds of people, where people talk about a lie over and over and over again until people believe that that's the truth. And we see that operating in politics again and again and again. And so Absalom is doing that. He is sowing discord and doubt in the minds of the people toward David, that he's too old, he's not really concerned, he doesn't care about you, he's got all caught up in this whole thing with uh, his adultery, his love affair with Bathsheba, and then the murder of her husband, and so uh, he really doesn't care. He's been, uh, he, he's been rendered spiritually impotent right now, and we need a new king. And that's his message, and he is charismatic, he is handsome, he is a, a, a young warrior, he's, uh, got a, he's vibrant, he's got a lot of vitality, and so he's winning people uh, to his side. And after four years of doing this, if you look at the Hebrew text, I mean the, at the English text of the New King James in chapter 15, verse 7, it says, Now it came to pass after 40 years in the Septuagint and in another uh, uh, translate, ancient translation called the Syriac uh, Peshitta, they have four years there. And so that fits the chronology. And so that's uh, probably the original reading. So there's, uh, he's, after four years of sowing discord, 
uh, he's ready to act. And so once, um, and at that point, he goes to David. Uh, he is seeking permission to, um, he's seeking permission to go to Hebron. He's made up some story about needing to fulfill a vow that he had made to God. We never see a picture of Absalom ever uh, devout. And so we know that he's just making this up to look good. Politicians for years make up their, uh, say the right things in terms of religion just in order to, to make people feel comfortable about their positions. Uh, so Absalom uh, gets permission from David to go down to Hebron. Once there, he sends his secret agents out throughout the land with a message to his followers to prepare to assemble, to prepare to gather. And at the same time, he invited 200 men from the administration of his father to come down to Hebron. Now, he doesn't, they don't have any idea what, what he's doing, but it's all to create a, a front, an appearance that, that he has all of David's administration uh, behind him. And then we're told that he called for Ahithophel, in verse 12, called for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city of, of Gilo. And so this is his plan. He's going to get Ahithophel on his side because he knows, knows that Ahithophel, the grandfather of Bathsheba, bears a grudge against David for what he has done uh, to his family. And so after that, in verses 14 through 16, 14, David hears, and he f- hears about this as Absalom marches on the capital, and then he will flee. And we've covered that period that there are several tests that take place during that particular time. Now, just to uh, quickly give us the context, uh, Absalom will enter Jerusalem. That's the focus of the rest of the lesson tonight from 1615 to 1714. And then we'll see next time how Hushai informs David of Absalom's uh, strategy, what Absalom intends to do, and his move against David that's described in 2 Samuel uh, 17, 24 to 26. And then David quickly moves across the Jordan to reposition in light of what Absalom is doing, and he'll get resupplied, and then the battle is fought. Now, here we have a map. I love maps. And I got this great book from Arnold Fruchtenbaum where they've redone. He's had books of maps before, but they've really done a much better job of putting these together in a recent book. And, and, and this is a map of the Davidic kingdom. What you have down in the south is Beersheba. And then up in the north, right up here in this general area is, is a dam. So in this text, we will hear about how Israel is described as from Dan to Beersheba. So that would be like saying all of Texas from El Paso to Beaumont or from Amarillo to McAllen. That would be uh, how it would be described. So Israel was always described as from uh, Dan to Beersheba. And you see a red line that goes up the middle, and this is called the Trunk Road. Actually, today it's called the Patriarch's Highway because this runs right along the spine of the country, right through the hill country, uh, the hill country of Judea down in the south, and there's Hebron, and then it goes up past Jerusalem, up all the way through Shechem, 
and up to the north. And this is the way you would travel uh, if you were traveling through the center of the of the country. Now, here's your uh, index up here. The green line is the rebellion of Absalom. So Absalom is going to come north, and he's going to head over this way and then cross the Jordan to the north of where David did. David crosses down here, and they'll meet at a battle here. That comes up in chapter 18. And then this red line is David leaving Jerusalem, going down to the Jordan, crossing at the fords of the Jordan, and then heading north. So that gives you the geography. Now the the teaching, the instruction, all of this is designed to illustrate something, as I've pointed out, and that is the contrast between human viewpoint solutions, otherwise known as paganism. Paganism is technically, it doesn't apply to Jews, it doesn't apply to Islam, but I think Muslims are pagan. And Jews honor the Old Testament, and the reason that Muslims are considered not pagan is because too many scholars assume that Allah is just another name for Elohim. And that's just completely false, and we've, I've studied that and taught on that in the past, that Allah is uh, the former moon god of the Arab pantheon that gets elevated in, to be the sole god in Muhammad's, uh, Muhammad's theology. So it's just pure paganism. But what we have, uh, so paganism produces its various worldviews, uh, touching on worldview on Thursday night. So paganism uh, operates on uh, human viewpoint, and all human viewpoint is generated by arrogance. It doesn't matter if the worldview is Eastern mysticism, if the worldview is uh, deism, if the worldview is naturalism, if the uh, worldview is postmodernism. They all operate on on arrogance, and they all promise a way of, of finding meaning and happiness and perfection in life. Proverbs fourteen twelve. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. And what we see in this episode, this just bizarre episode with uh, the recommendation of Ahithophel to uh, uh, to Absalom is just pure paganism. It's a a great illustration of the pagan approach to power and authority. It is just tyranny, and it doesn't care about people, and God is completely left out of it. And the contrast is the divine viewpoint solution, which is based on grace and humility, which is exhibited by David as well as uh, his friend Hushai, who is used by God to overturn the council of Ahithophel. So last time we got to Second Sam 16.15. Meanwhile, Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel was with them. Now, when we go back to looking at, at Absalom, we see that Absalom has the people on his side. He's been very careful to do that. Uh, he's won their hearts. They're rebelling against the king. And one of the things we should learn is any rebellion against authority is fueled by arrogance. It's motivated by arrogance. And the scriptures are very clear that we are to be submissive to the authorities. 
In Romans 13.1, Paul said, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. Now, Paul wrote this early in Nero's reign. At that time, Nero was uh, was not as bad as he became later. He hadn't uh, crossed the line from sanity to insanity. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. So Paul is talking about submission to uh, Emperor Nero in his administration. He says, for there is no authority except from God, and that includes Nero. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Now, there are exceptions, and we've studied this before. There are exceptions such as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, who, uh, re- who refused to obey the king's order to bow down to an idol. There's also the example in Acts 4 of Peter and John refusing to submit to the authority of the Sanhedrin when they told them to stop preaching the gospel and preaching about Jesus. See, there, God's orders always take precedence over man's orders. So when any human authority tells you to do something that is a direct violation, that's important, a direct, specific violation of Scripture, not say, oh, well, you know, there's this principle. No. What we have, the examples we have in Scripture is always when, when uh, there's a direct violation of God's command, when God says you will have no other gods before me, and then uh, some emperor comes along and says you're going to bow down and worship me as God, well, you don't do that. That is a legitimate resistance to authority because that authority has overstepped the bounds. So there are exceptions, but notice in every example of Scripture how it is handled with grace and with respect, as, the, as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said to Nebuchadnezzar, said, King, we cannot obey you because we must obey our God, and he can deliver us, but even if he doesn't, We still cannot violate his command. So they weren't sure what what God would do in uh, delivering them. First Peter. Now Peter writes later on, a little while after Paul writes Romans, during a time when Nero has crossed the sanity boundary. And Nero is now in a psychotic state. And Peter writes, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme. Honor all people, verse 17. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Now, that the king as a person may not be someone you wish to honor. It may be somebody who, who is not worthy of respect personally, but it's the office. Maybe somebody in your, uh, if you're in the military, you may have a commanding officer that uh, probably got promoted beyond the level of his capabilities. And so now you can't really respect him as an individual. Maybe it has to do with personal things in his life, but you can't respect him as an individual, but he still is the commanding officer. He's the one who's in charge and we follow him. Same thing with the president. We've all lived through a number of different uh, presidents, some of whom we can respect a great deal because of their personal character. 
I can think of three or four that I can respect because of their personal character. I may not have agreed with some of their policies, but I could respect their character. Then there are others whose characters are just just an absolute mess, and we can't respect them at all because of their, their character, lack, complete lack of integrity, uh, complete inability to lead, but we have to respect their position as, as the president. And so we see an example of that with Paul, I mean with a David, in relation to Saul. And we studied those, those passages in 1 Samuel 26 and 1 Samuel 28, how David was put in a situation where he could have taken Saul's life and he refuses, refused to do it because you can't touch the Lord's anointed. And the great example there that I encourage you all to think about and that is that when he cut the hem off of uh, off of Saul's robe to show the, how close he was and that he could have taken Saul's life, he considered that to be such an act of disrespect for Saul, for the king, that, that he had to confess that to Saul. Now think about that. Think about how we speak sometimes about a, a man that we don't respect but who is president. And we, we say very disrespectful things of them. We say very harsh things about them. But yet, when we look at David's example, it's quite convicting that we have to respect the office and the office holder because he's in that office and not be examples of that kind of, that kind of disrespect. Well, as David is leaving Jerusalem, he got bad news. And that bad news we see in 2 Samuel 15, 31, which I talked about before, and this is when he hears that his trusted counselor, Ahithophel, has now joined the conspirators with Absalom. Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David prays. Now, this is a significant uh, prayer of David. He prays. O oh, uh, oh Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Notice that he uses a phrase here where he trusts God to carry out the plan to achieve the objective of discounting Ahithophel's counsel in some way. doesn't tell God exactly how, how to do it. Uh, he prays for the results that that counsel of Ahithophel uh, will be frustrated. That's the meaning of the Hebrew word here. It has the idea to frustrate that counsel so it doesn't uh, come into effect. The word that is used there has a range of meanings. Uh, Robert Gordis, who is the father of a well-known rabbi who writes a lot about uh, pro-Israel events. In fact, he's written a book, that's a short history of Israel, which I highly recommend. And, uh, but he is the grandson of Robert Gordis, who was an Old Testament scholar, who's written commentaries on Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes and Job and other things that I um, was aware of and had to read in when I was in, in seminary. But he wrote uh, an article on study of Hebrew roots, where you can have a root that in one context it has a good meaning, but in another context it has an opposite meaning. And so that's the idea here uh, with this word uh, that's used here in the context. And it has this idea, 
it has this idea of uh, frustrating the counsel of Ahithophel to render it foolish. Now, whenever we talk about words like foolish or wise in the Scripture, wisdom has to do with the skillful application of the Word of God. Foolishness is always the rejection of the Word of God. It always indicates somebody that's going his own way. For example, the, the, the psalmist uh, talks about, uh, talks about the, uh, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. He's not a fool first. He says there is no God. That's what makes him a fool, is that he has rejected the authority of God. The wise person is humble and submits to God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the beginning of knowledge. And so uh, the foolishness here is the counsel of someone who is in human viewpoint, who's in paganism, who has rejected uh, the truth of God's word. And so David is praying that if Hithophel's counsel uh, will lead to destructive consequences due to a hasty or rash uh, behavior. And when he does this, I think that he was um, he was really praying that that uh, perhaps the way the language is is make the advice of Ahithophel foolish. That's a better translation of the Hebrew, and that's in the from the NET translation. And he, it's as if David is thinking let foolish things come out of his mouth. But that's not what God's going to do. In fact, we'll see in this next section that Ahithophel's counsel is extremely wise. It is well-focused, and it should have been followed. But what God is going to do is to befuddle the mind of Absalom so that Absalom is going to go for the bad counsel of Hushai. Hushai is going to... Uh, give an alternate plan, and Absalom's going to be uh, put in this situation where he has to make a decision between uh, Ahithophel, uh, the wise counselor whose, whose counsel is considered uh, almost on par with the authority of God's word, or Hushai, who Absalom initially uh, suspected of being a, a, a traitor or a spy, but then uh, Hushai convinces him. Now, I don't think that's just because Hushai is a good actor. I think it's because God is working. You trust in the Lord, and God directs your path. So we trust in the Lord, and I believe that what happens here is that God uh, works in the mind of, of Absalom so that his thinking is no longer as clear as it was. He's operating on arrogance. He's full of himself. He has uh, all these people behind him. Look at what he's done. And so he's so caught up with his accomplishments that he doesn't think through what he is doing. In 2 Samuel 16, 15, we're told that Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel was with him. Notice it doesn't say Ahithophel was with them all the men of Israel. It was with him. So we see that a subtle point is made that Ahithophel's allegiance has now shifted completely to Absalom. The phrase, the men of Israel, is a phrase that's used, for example, in Deuteronomy 29.10, 
All of you stand today before the Lord your God. This is Moses speaking. Your leaders and your tribes and your elders and your officers. Notice this is talking about all the various levels of leadership within the nation Israel, within their tribal structure. And then he concludes this by saying all the men of Israel. So this isn't talking about all the males in Israel. It's just talking about uh, the leadership. The term men of Israel are the leadership of Israel. And so in verse uh, 16 we read, and so it was when Hushai, the archite, the reason I'm making that a guttural, it's not a soft H, it is a, the harsh hate in Hebrew. It's Hushai. Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, that Hushai said to Absalom, long live the king, long live the king. Now, this is really interesting. There's so much that goes on in the text of Samuel. I've commented on this many times going through here, that the writer of Samuel has in some places very earthy, graphic language in the Hebrew that uh, probably would offends the sensibility of a lot of uh, a lot of Christians if it were accurately translated. But here we have uh, some interesting uh, play on words. You think about this. He doesn't say, Hushai comes up to, to Absalom, and he's, he's got to convince Absalom that his loyalty lies with him. But at some level, he doesn't want to lie. So instead of saying, long live King Absalom, he says, long live the king. Well, he's talking about David because his loyalty is completely and totally with David as the king. He says, long live the king. So we see this, this double entendre that's going on here. Remember in First Chronicles 27.33, we're told that Ahithophel was the king's counselor and Hushai the archite was the king's companion. And the word there means a close, close friend. They are, they are very close friends. And so David is not, I mean, uh, Hushai is not going to, uh, he's not going to betray David. And he says, long live the king, long live the king. But Absalom is, is um, suspicious. And he says, is this your loyalty, your chesed to your friend? Remember, chesed is the loyal love based on a covenant, based on an agreement. So you're going to betray this close friend of yours? Uh, Absalom is, is very concerned about this. Now, the story, maybe there was more to it than this, but the story's been abbreviated uh, to get the main points across. And so Absalom challenges Hushai, give me your... Uh, give me your credentials that you're really coming against David. Uh, why didn't you go with him? Uh, you are his sworn, uh, sworn friend, his sworn companion. And then in verse 18, Hushai says to Absalom, notice this, another little double entendre here. No, but whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel choose, his I will be. Well, who is it that the Lord chooses? The Lord chooses David. And all the men of Israel, the leaders in Israel, have chosen David in the past, and they'll be loyal to David in the future. And so he, he, when he says this, he's still not saying that, that he, specifically 
that it's Absalom who now has his loyalty. But that's what Absalom hears. Why does Absalom hear that? Why doesn't he catch on? Because he's blinded by arrogance. Arrogance is blinding. A couple of principles. Arrogance is always blinding. When we get mired in arrogance, it distorts our, our perspective. Why? Because in the arrogant skills, the first stage is, is self-absorption. We're so impressed with our plans and what we want to do that we lose the ability to think objectively. And so Absalom is not thinking objectively. He challenges Hushai, and Hushai seems to say the right thing, so he's, he's caught up, he's sucked into it. And I think part of that is because God is working uh, behind the scenes to befuddle the clarity of Absalom's thinking. And, and then Hushai goes on to say in verse 19, Furthermore, whom should I serve? Should I not serve in the presence of his son? Notice he never calls David the king. He, he, he avoids that. He refers to Absalom's father, and he refers to Absalom as his son, but he never specifically names or references David. He said, shouldn't I serve in the presence of his son? And then notice this next phrase. He says, as I have served in your father's presence, so will I be in your presence. That first line he says, He's really saying, it's very slick. He's saying, I was loyal to your father. And then he says, so I shall be in your presence. That is, still loyal to your father. He never fully commits himself. There's always this underlying double entendre going on here where he has never quite come out and, and says that. Says that he's loyal to Absalom. Never names him. Then in verse 20, then Absalom says to Ahithophel, so here's the scene where Absalom is there, Hushai comes up, they have this whole loyalty test, and then and Ahithophel is right there. So Hushai is getting the Oscar for best actor that year because he's been able to fool both Absalom and Ahithophel, and that's because God is with him. God is making David's path straight. David is trusting the Lord, sends Hushai on this mission, and now God is working to bring about his results. Uh, so Absalom now turns to Ahithophel and says, give advice as to what we should do. So now it's Ahithophel's turn, turn to speak. So there's two things that are going to be recommended by Ahithophel. Uh, now, the first seems very coarse to us, and uh, it's just not part of our culture. But this was something that was typical of the ancient world in the in the pagan culture because of their approach to power. Their approach to power wasn't that authority was delegated from God and that they should lead from humility, but it was uh, uh, leading from a position of strength and power and enforcing that on people. And so he gives two, uh, two pieces of advice in verses 20 to 23, so the scripture gives us enough information without being graphic about it, and he tells uh, Absalom, he says, what you need to do is to take David's concubines. Now, remember, when David left the city, he left 
ten concubines behind. These were women that were uh, part of his harem, not necessarily women that he would have uh, relations with. Uh, concubines may or may not have had relations with the one to whom uh, they were concubines. Uh, so, But they were protected by that man, and David had left them behind to oversee the housekeeping and to protect it and take care of things to the best of their ability. And so now Ahithophel says, you need to take those concubines, and you need to take them up on the roof, and you need to publicly have sexual relations with them in front of everybody to demonstrate that you're now the king. You're the one in a position of power. You are in control of the king's household. You have that power, and so you are going to express this. And this just shows the arrogance of both Ahithophel and Absalom. It shows that they have no concern uh, for these women who are the concubines and that they have no humility, uh, which is part of good, good leadership. And what Ahithophel is, that's his first advice. Let me give you the second, then we'll look at the first one again. Second piece of advice is given in the first four verses of the next chapter, where Ahithophel says that you need, we need to go immediately, put our troops together, and attack David before he has a chance to get organized while he is still in a position of running, and uh, attack him in a complete surprise attack, and then we'll just ignore everybody else. We'll have a special squad that will go forward, and I will kill David. So we see his vindictiveness, his hatred for David coming out in that particular plan. Now back to the first plan. This just shows it's paganism. It is a total violation of the of, of Leviticus, of the Mosaic Law. Leviticus 18.8 says that the nakedness of your father's wife you shall not uncover. It is your father's nakedness. So this would apply to concubines, that this was complete, uh, completely prohibited by the Mosaic law, and yet he's telling Absalom that that's what he needs to do. So as far as Absalom is concerned, he, he has no thoughts for what God wants. All of his religious devotion is a pure sham, which is true for a lot of politicians, it just giving lip service to it. And so he's going to go right along with it. This is not something new in the Scripture. It is seen in one earlier episode in Genesis chapter 35, verse 22, that when Israel is dwelling in the land, that is Jacob, not the nation yet. Uh, this is Jacob. Israel was Jacob's alternate name given him by God, that his firstborn son, Reuben, while Israel is away, he goes in and he has relations with one of his father's concubines named Bilhah. And Israel heard about it. That is, Jacob heard about it. But he doesn't do anything about it. He doesn't say anything. He keeps it quiet. He keeps his own counsel because one day he's going to take care of this. And that comes at the end of his life. As Jacob is lying, dying rather, and he is has his sons come before him, he is going to utter prophecy over each one of the sons. And when it comes to his firstborn Reuben in Genesis 49.3, he says, Reuben, you're my firstborn, my might in the beginning 
of my strength. That is the first of the family, the first of his sons in the beginning, the first one. The excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. That refers to the position of the firstborn. That's what should have been his. He should have demonstrated that. But then Jacob says, unstable as water. You're not trustworthy. We can't depend on you. You're always unstable and you always will be unstable. You shall not excel because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He he went up to my couch. And so Jacob explains this. There's no inheritance for Reuben. He is untrustworthy. He is unstable. So this is what Ahithophel is doing. This was standard practice among the pagan kings in the ancient world. And then the author, note in verse 23, the author, this is the writer giving sort of an editorial comment to the narrative, and he's recalling something to the mind of the reader. He says, now the advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one had inquired at the oracle of God. His counsel is considered to be almost as authoritative as the word of God itself. So was all the advice of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. And so it seems that that there is uh, nothing to do uh, about this. This would be what exactly what Absalom uh, will do. And so we're told that this is exactly what Absalom did in this particular instance. And he pitched a tent, sort of a canopy bed is what the meaning of the word is, on top of the house, and he consummated this deal to demonstrate that he was now uh, the, the king and the authority in Israel. Then we come to the second piece of advice in 2 Samuel 17.1. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, so this is the second part of the two-part advice, let me choose 12,000 men. And I will arise and pursue David tonight. See, he understands haste. We have to catch the enemy while he's off balance, while he's on the back foot, while he's not prepared. Let's pursue David. Let's hit him while he doesn't expect him. Let's execute a surprise attack in the night and ambush him. And then I will come upon him while he is weary and weak. He's not talking about them. He's talking about him, that is David. Ahithophel makes this personal. I will come upon David while he's weary and weak and make him afraid. It's a terrorist attack. He wants to terrorize the people, hit him out of the dark in surprise so they will panic and flee and they won't be organized and then he will strike only the king. Notice he says, I will strike only the king, not we. He wants to be the one to take David out. He wants to execute David. And then he says, then, listen to this promise. What arrogance. Then I will bring back all the people to you. I will reunite the tribes and bring everybody back to you. Um, When all return, except the man you seek, all the people will be at peace. So Ahithophel is saying, I've got the proper strategy. We can take David out tonight. Then I will reunite the tribes, and we will all uh, be subservient uh, to you. And then the comment by the 
by the writer, and the saying pleased Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Now remember what they just said, the advice of Ahithophel was as if you were inquiring at the oracle of God. So this advice is perfect. It's great advice. It's militarily sound, but God's going to intervene. And so in verse 5 we read, then Absalom said, well, call Hushai also. Let's hear what he has to say. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom spoke to him and said, this is what Ahithophel said. That's what it means. Ahithophel spoke in this manner. Uh, This is what he says. Shall we do that? If not, speak up. So he, he, he is acting as if, okay, we've got one course of action. What's the other one? So in this passage in verse uh, 7, let's look at verse 7. I don't have a slide on. So Hushai said to Absalom, the advice that Ahithophel has given is not good at this time. Now, that's really um, not the best way to translate that. It makes it seem like, well, it might be good at some other time, but it's not good at this time. But the way the Hebrew text reads, it's at... the advice Ahithophel has given this time is not good. So he directly is going to counter what Ahithophel has said. And then in verse 8, he says, For you know your father and his men. He focuses on Israel. You know, know exactly what David is like and what the men of Israel are like that are with him. These are warriors. They're tried and true. They are battle-hardened. They, they fought the Philistines. They fought with David. They're his mighty men. He's surrounded by them. And not only that, they're angry, but they understand uh, the tactics of the situation. They understand how to set up security around their encampment, and they will uh, expect something like this. And so what we have to do is we have to set up, uh, we have to avoid a trap. And that's exactly what David and his men will do. So he says, they're mighty men, they're enraged in their minds, they're like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Your father is a man of war. Notice he still doesn't mention David's name. Your father is a man of war and will not camp with the people. They'll go somewhere else. So if you hit the main camp, you're going to miss David, and then they're going to come in and hit you from the flank, and you're going to get wiped out. So you need to avoid this. This is not good advice at all. And then he goes on to say in verse 9, Surely by now he's hidden in some pit or in some other place. And it will be whether some of them are overthrown to the first that whoever hears it will say so that that some of them, that is some of those attacking, if they're overthrown at the first, that whoever hears it will say there's a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. So you're going to hit, what he's saying is you're going to hit the main camp and some of your men are going to be killed and then there's going to be a rumor that you're being defeated and your men are being killed and then David's going to hit you from the flank and you're going to be wiped out. Even he who is valued, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will melt completely. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and those who are with him are valiant men. Therefore, his advice in verse 11, Therefore I advise that all Israel be fully gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba. See, that's what I was showing you on the map. From the north to the south, the whole country. Wait until we have time to gather a full army. We will outnumber him by tens of thousands. And then 
uh, we can go to battle with him, and you can lead them. So he's appealing to Absalom's vanity. He's appealing to his arrogance. And then you can come to find him in some place where he'll be found and will fall upon him like the dew on the ground. And all the men with him, not one will be left alive. So that's his plan. That's what he sets forth. And then in verse 13, we read, Moreover, if he has withdrawn into a city, then all Israel shall bring ropes to that city and will pull it into the river until there is not one small stone found there. Now, they were real excited about Ahithophel's council. They thought that was great. But now, in verse 14, we read, So Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The advice of Hushai the archite is better than the advice of Ahithophel. And then the editorial comment. This gives us the clue to the understanding and interpreting the the passage in terms of our application. For the Lord had purposed to defeat the good advice of Ahithophel to the intent that the Lord might bring disaster on Absalom. See, so often we look at the details of life. We look at a crisis whether it's a financial crisis, which this uh, virus could bring on, whether it is a health crisis, whatever it may be, and we forget that the unknown factor is the sovereignty of God. We forget that God's in control. We forget that we are to trust him and let him work things out and that God has the power. God knows more than we do. God has more power than we do, and God has a plan and a purpose that nothing on this earth can foil. And so we need to relax and just trust God, and he'll take care of things. Doesn't mean we should do anything foolish, but that we should trust in him and walk in obedience to his word. Isaiah 44, 24, and 25 reminds us of who God is. Thus says Yahweh, your Redeemer, talking to Israel. This is a plural, the, 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 talking about Yahweh as the Redeemer of Israel. And he who formed you, that is Israel, from the womb. I am Yahweh, he says, who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone, who spreads abroad the earth by myself. When you think about the power of God in creation, what is there in creation that would be more powerful than God? There's no person, there's no virus, there's no... Uh, economic situation. There's no war that can frustrate the plan of God. Verse 25, talking about God, he frustrates the signs of the babblers and drives diviners mad, who turns wise men backward. That's Ahithophel, turns wise men backward and makes their knowledge foolishness. We have to remember Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. We'll come back next time and see how Hushai warns David and his escape, and then into chapter 18 and the ultimate defeat of Absalom. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening and to uh, see the, uh, that this is an example to us of what is right and what is wrong, an example to us of wisdom versus foolishness, an example to us of how trusting you is what overrides everything in our lives. And then as we relax in our trust in you, you bring about your will. And so we can be confident that no matter what may threaten us, whether it's health, whether it's money, 
uh, whether it's security, whether it's a job, you're in control. We go about our responsibility and trust you to bring about the results, which is exactly what David did. And so, Father, we pray that you would encourage us to be more trusting, more confident in you in every area of our life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.